0: God's been good to each and every one of us. He's blessed us with the good health and he's blessed us with the safe passage to this place tonight. It's good to see everyone here tonight. Thankful for the presence of uh, each person, each individual. If you're here tonight and you're a visitor, we're we're glad that you're here as well. Uh, We hope you'll continue to come back and be a part of the gospel meeting here at Northwest. Northwest. I hope and pray you'll pay careful attention to the things that I want to show you from God's Word tonight. I want to talk about the topic of idolatry. The title of my lesson comes from the same words that we find in 1 John 5, verse 21. It's the very last words in John's first epistle where he says, Keep yourselves from idols. In Genesis 1, verse 26, the Bible says that God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowls of the air, and over, ca- over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Bible says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. You know, when God created mankind on the sixth day of creation, he created something very, very unique and very, very special. You see, unlike any other forms of life that he had ever created, unlike the animals, the plants, the birds, the fish, when it came time to create man, God said, I'm going to make him in my own image and after my own likeness. And you know, God said, I'm going to create him to have dominion to rule and to reign over all other forms of life on the face of the planet. But you know, that dominion was not enough for man. He became greedy for more. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. I want you to know tonight, as we start our study about idolatry, that the serpent, Satan here, was the first person in the history of the world to suggest the possibility of there being more than one God. Satan was the first person to introduce that idea into man's mind way back in the very beginning, here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. And the idea of being gods was very, very enticing to Adam and to Eve. You know, Satan is very, very deceptive in everything that he does. And the way I see it, what Satan did here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5 is he put a deceit sandwich in front of Adam and Eve. And I want to tell you what a deceit sandwich is. A deceit sandwich is one big lie sandwiched in between two truths. And you may have never thought of it about that, but let me show you what I mean. In Genesis 3:5, the serpent Satan said three things to, Adam, to, to, to Eve. He said, if you'll eat that fruit, your eyes shall be opened. That was the first thing. And what I would tell you tonight is that Satan was actually telling the truth there. Because in Genesis 3 and 7, after they took the fruit, guess what the Bible says? The Bible says their eyes were opened. Satan said, if you'll eat that fruit God told you not to eat, your eyes will be opened. And that came true. That was true. You know, Satan also told them that if you'll eat that fruit God told you not to eat, you'll know good and evil. And I would tell you tonight that in fact, yes, Satan was telling the truth there also. Because in Genesis 3.22, God says that man has come to know good and evil. That was a consequence of taking the fruit. He came to know the difference between good and evil. So Satan told two truths, but what did he say right there in the middle of it all? He said, ye shall be as gods. Now there is the big lie that Satan put before Eve, sandwiched right there between those two truths. Ye shall be as gods. The idea that man can make his own god or even be his own god is called idolatry. That's the essence of what idolatry really is. And you know, the scriptures are filled with stories about idolatry, The Scriptures are filled with warnings uh, that warn against idolatry. And you know, I believe deep down much of mankind still longs for and is still searching for what Adam and Eve were deceived into pursuing right here in Genesis chapter 3. There's still much much of mankind today that deep down they want to find a way to be their own God. I believe that Satan is still alive today. He's still working and he's enticing people down a pathway of idolatry. Which is w- virtually what he did here uh, with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. I want to talk to you tonight about some misconceptions about idolatry. Now, for the longest time, any time I ever heard the word idolatry or read the word idolatry in the Scriptures, I imagined a man chiseling uh, a statue maybe made out of stone or carving a statue made out of wood and then putting on a ceremonial robe and then maybe lighting some candles and burning some incense and falling down before and bowing to the idol that he made with his own hands. That's what I'd imagine any time I heard the word idolatry. And, you know, I would sort of dismiss it in thinking, well, you know, we don't have that problem around here. They might have that problem over in India or over in China. But but we we don't have an idolatry problem here in the United States. We don't do those types of things. But then I got to studying God's Word, and I got to really thinking about it and pondering it. Every man-made idol that's ever been made from wood, from stone, from gold or silver was first imagined in the mind of a man. I want to tell you tonight that idolatry is a sin of the mind. Every man who's ever bowed down his knees to honor an idol first honored that idol in his heart. I want to tell you tonight that idolatry is a sin of the heart. It is not just a sin of the hands and making the idol. It's not just a sin of the knees and falling down and bowing before the idol. Idolatry is a sin of the mind and it is a sin of the heart. In Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 16, God condemns the children of Israel. He says, because they despise my judgments and walk not in my statutes, but polluted my Sabbaths, look, for their heart went after their idols. What went after idols? Their heart did. Idolatry is a sin of the heart. You can have an idolatrous heart and you can have an idolatrous mind every day of your life. And never once make an idol with your hands or fall down on your knees before a graven image. We can commit idolatry our whole life in our heart and in our mind, okay? Look at Ezekiel 14, verses 1 to 4. Ezekiel 14, verses 1 to 4. The Bible says, Then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face, should I be inquired of at all by them? Therefore speak unto them, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, every man of the house of Israel, that setteth up his idols in his heart, and putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and cometh to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols." Here's another passage in Ezekiel that teaches us where idolatry happens. It happens in the heart. The children of Israel had set up their idols in their heart. So on the surface, you know, it might appear that we don't have an idolatry problem here in the United States, that that's just a problem that Buddhists have in China and Hindus have in India. But that's not true. I wonder if we have more idols here in the United States of America than they do in China or India. Idols hidden and tucked away deep in the hearts of men. Maybe never to be seen at all by human eyes, but they're there nonetheless, tucked away deep in our heart. Idolatry is a terrible, terrible sin because it contradicts some very, very fundamental truths about God and who He is. Some of the fundamental errors of idolatry are these. Idolatry is a denial that there is only one true and living God. That is a fundamental truth. There's one true and living God. And idolatry denies that truth, doesn't it? In Ephesians 4 and 4, it says, There's one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. There's only one true and living God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one true and living God. And you know, idolatry is in direct conflict with that fundamental truth. One of the other fundamental errors of idolatry is that it carries the idea many times that we can make God better than He already is. People get off into idolatry because they think they can make God better than He already is. Way back in Exodus chapter 20, this is when God gave Israel the law at Mount Sinai. He'd just given them the Ten Commandments, in fact, earlier in this same chapter. Not long after that, listen to what God tells Israel in Exodus 20, verse 22. The Lord said unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say to the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Ye shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings, thy peace offerings, thy sheep, and thine oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone... Thou shalt not build it of hewn stone, for if if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. I want you to think about what God told Israel here. He says, I don't want you to make me images and statues of gold and silver. He says, when it comes time to worship me, you worship me at an altar. And what they would do way back then, even in the age of the patriarchs, is they'd pile up a pile of rocks. And upon that, they would offer their offerings and worship God. Just a pile of rocks. Look at what God tells Israel. Listen, if you, if you build an altar of, of stone unto me, he says, you build it out of unhewn stone. Don't build it out of hewn stone. He says, if you stack that pile of rocks up and you look at it and you say, well, you know, it's, it'll work, but it sure would look a lot nicer if we would just chisel this corner off and chisel this edge off and, and we can make it look better here and we can make it look better there and, and the man gets to chiseling and chiseling and, and lo and behold, what's he doing? He's making it look how he wants it to be and making it something that pleases him and the focus is left serving and pleasing God and now the focus is doing something that looks good and, and pleases us. And you know that's just the pathway down the pathway uh, that's the those are the steps down the pathway of idolatry. He says you build me that altar, don't lift your tool up on those stones. You even lift up your hammer and your chisel, you start touching those stones, you polluted it all together. You polluted it all together. And and the, and the principle here is this, you know, we can't improve God. We can't improve the ways of God. God isn't We're in no position whatsoever. And God, due to His own holy and good and righteous nature, there's no room for improvement with God. But many times man has thought he could make something better than the only true and living God. And that set him on a pathway to idolatry. We can give God more of this quality. We can take away some of that quality. We can add these attributes to God which we like. We can subtract these attributes from God that we don't like. And over the course of time, we come up with a God who fits really, really well into our own personal perspectives and our own personal desires. Let me give you just some examples of this. The person who might love nature and hate organized religion, they dream up or imagine a God in their mind that loves nature and hates organized religion. The person who is greedy for more wealth and possessions, they dream up a God or imagine a God who wants to bless them with more wealth and possessions. The person who lives a homosexual lifestyle dreams up or imagines a God that is in favor or okay with the homosexual lifestyle. Does that make sense? That's what we tend to do if we're not careful. And I would tell you tonight that Think, that Thinking like this and developing our own perspective of God that pleases us is, is really nothing more than a soft form of idolatry. What a crime against heaven to think that we would even have the right to form or create our own concept of God when in actuality He is the one who formed and created us. You know, in the beginning God said, Come, let us make man in our image. And then for us to turn around later and say, Come, let us make God in our image. What a crime against heaven that is. But that's truly what idolatry is all about. Let Come, let us make God in our own image, in an image that pleases us. I want to talk to you a little bit about the ingredients of idolatry. There's some fundamental ingredients involved in idolatry. And the first one is pride. Pride is at the root of idolatry. In Ezekiel 28 and 1, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, Thus saith the Lord God, because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God, I set in the seed of God, in the midst of the seas, yet thou art a man, and not God. Though thou set thine heart as the heart of God, behold, thou art wiser than Daniel." There is no secret that they can hide from thee. With thy wisdom and with thine understanding thou hast gotten thee riches and hast gotten gold and silver into thy treasures. And by thy great wisdom and by thy traffic hast thou increased thy riches. And thine heart is lifted up because of thine riches. King of Tyrus is under consideration here. And the Bible says that, you know, God blessed the king of Tyrus with great wisdom and great understanding that's mentioned there in verse 3 and verse 4. God also provided business opportunity for this king to use his wisdom and increase his silver, increase his gold, and increase in many other riches. And rather than be humble and thank God for all of these blessings, what did the king of Tyrus do? The Bible says it lifted up his heart. His heart was filled with pride. He thought everything that he had, he had gotten from his own hand, from his own mind, from his own honor, and so on and so forth. It, it was all about him. And he didn't humble himself and honor and recognize God as the giver of every good and perfect gift. And you know, as the king of Tyre started down this pathway, he began to believe, as it says in verse 2, he began to believe, I am a God. He said, I sit in the seat of God. When we let pride into our heart, this is what it does. It deceives us slowly into believing that we are somebody that we really are not. That's what pride does to us. It makes us blind to the reality of who we really are. We've got to beware of pride. Pride is one of the key and crucial ingredients of idolatry. Here's another one, rebellion. Rebellion. Pride in the heart puffs us up. It tells us we don't need God. Our will is better than God's will. And then rebellion in the heart and in the mind says, I won't seek God. I won't seek God's will. I'm going to seek my own will regardless as to what God says, thinks, or wants. That's what rebellion does. And rebellion is sort of a natural response to pride. One one leads to the other, doesn't it? Look at Psalm chapter 78, verses 5 to 8. Now, this is a psalm about the children of Israel, and throughout their history, the children of Israel had problems with pride and rebellion and idolatry. And this psalm talks a little bit about that. Psalm 78, verse 5, For he that's God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And might not be as their fathers, look, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. You know, we need to remember that God sees the heart of man, and rebellion in the heart is a great sin in the sight of God. A rebellious heart says, I'm going to do things my own way. Regardless as to what God says or wants or thinks, I'm going to do things my way. It's sort of like the story of King Saul in 1 Samuel 15. Remember the story of King Saul here? God told Saul to go and uh, utterly destroy the Amalekite people everything they had. And Saul didn't obey the voice of the Lord. He kept back the best of their livestock and saved King Agag alive. The prophet Samuel comes to King Saul and confronts him about his disobedience. And Samuel tells Saul in that context, in 1 Samuel 15:23, he says, "...for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft." And stubbornness is as the iniquity as, as iniquity and idolatry. Samuel told him, Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and this stubbornness associated with it, the Bible here says it's as iniquity and idolatry, the very topic that we're talking about tonight. So rebellion is one of the key ingredients of of idolatry. Here's another ingredient, deception. This is one of the most important ingredients of idolatry. I'll probably spend more time talking about this one than any of the others. Deception. You can think about deception as being spiritual blindness, okay? A heart and a mind that is completely blinded by pride that leads to rebellion. A heart and a mind that is completely blinded to the reality of of its own sinfulness. That's what deception is all about. And let me tell you something, deception or spiritual blindness is one of Satan's favorite tools to use. I want to read a lengthy passage from Isaiah 44, because I think this passage, better than any other in the Bible, illustrates the deception and the spiritual blindness associated with idolatry. Isaiah 44 verse 9, Isaiah says concerning the children of Israel that they make a graven image, or excuse me, they that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit. And they are their own witnesses. They see not, nor know, that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a God, or molten a graven image, that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed, and the workmen. They are of men, let them all be gathered together, let them stand up, yet they shall fear, and they shall be ashamed together. The smith with the tongs, boak worketh in the coals, and fashioneth it with hammers, and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry, and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water, and is faint. The carpenter stretcheth out his rule, he marketh it with a line, he fitteth it with planes, and he marketh it out with a compass." And maketh it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He's talking about the many different ways that the blacksmith and the carpenter, the woodworker, would plan out and create these graven images of man's hands, these idols. Verse 14, He heweth him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof, he'll take of this tree that he's grown, he will take thereof and warm himself, yea, he kindleth it and baketh bread, yea, he maketh a god and worshipeth it, he maketh it a graven image and falleth down thereto. Verse 16, He burneth part part thereof in the fire, with part thereof he eateth flesh, he roasteth roast, and is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself, and saith, ha ah, I'm warm, I've seen the fire. And the residue, the leftover of that wood, he cut down the tree, he used part of it to burn in the fire, he baked, he ba- he baked food on it, he used the, the fire to warm himself, and then with what's left over of that wood... That he's burnt up in the the fireplace there with the residue thereof. The Bible says, he maketh a God. Even his graven image, he falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and and saith, deliver me, for thou art my God. Now we can see the foolishness of all of this. But the whole point of what Isaiah is going to say here now as we finish this passage is that the people involved in this cannot see. They're spiritually blind to their own sin and their own foolishness. Verse 18, they have not known nor understood. For he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. And none considereth in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding, to say, I have burned part of it in the fire. Yea, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it. And shall I make the residue? Shall I take the leftover and make thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stalk of a tree? Would we go out here and find a tree stump and fall down to it and pray to it and say, deliver me, you're my God? He feedeth on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside that he cannot deliver his soul. Nor say, is there not a lie In my right hand, the lie, the deception's right there. It's right there in his hand. He can't even realize it. He can't even see because he's been deceived and he's spiritually blind to all of this. There was a lot there in that passage, but let me just point out some of the important parts of this passage that concern this ingredient of deception. Verse 9, he said, They see not nor know. Verse 18, he says, they have not known nor understood. Verse 19, none considereth in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding. Why? Because verse 20, a deceived heart hath turned him aside. This is what happens when we fall under deception. We cannot see, we cannot understand how sinful our situation really is. And you know, deception by its very definition is very deceptive, okay? Okay? We are oftentimes unaware and blind to deception as it slowly sucks us in and traps us in the prison of our own delusional mind. That's why deception is so dangerous. It sucks us in very slowly without us even maybe being able to see or understand it. That's why we need to wake up. We need to have our eyes wide open we need to have our hearts and our ears wide open. We need to wake up and see the spiritual blindness that's going on around us. See the spiritual blindness that we might even be, be subject to if we're not careful. You know, if we would examine ourselves, we might even find that in some areas we might be spiritually blind and we might be flirting with a, a soft form of idolatry in our own life. We have to beware of this deception, this spiritual blindness. It's at the root. It's one of the key ingredients of idolatry. Ephesians 4.17 says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye, that's Christians, that's us, henceforth walk not as other Gentiles do, in the vanity of their own mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. Because of the blindness of their heart, we can't be like unbelievers, like the people of the world. Their understanding has been darkened. They've been deceived. They have blindness of heart. They can't see their own sinful and wicked situation. They can't see the idolatry that they have in their heart. We need to wake up and be able to see it so we don't fall under the same condemnation as they do. You know, Satan is the great deceiver in this world. I believe Satan is behind all deception. And we're letting Satan have his way with us if we allow ourselves to come under his deception. 2 Thessalonians 2 and 9, it says, "...even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved." For this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned or condemned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Here's what this verse teaches us. When we don't love the truth of God's Word as we should, and when we take pleasure in unrighteousness or in sinfulness, Satan will always be there to step in with spiritual lies and spiritual blindness for us to believe and fall into. And you know, God will even allow us to come under that strong, deceitful uh, delusion. God will allow us to come under Satan's delusion. He'll allow us to go into deception. Because really, it's our own fault. We didn't love the truth as we should, and we took pleasure in unrighteousness when we should have took pleasure in honoring the Word of God. So we've got to be careful of deception. It's at the the very uh, core of, of idolatry. The, f- the fourth and final ingredient behind idolatry I want to talk to you about tonight is covetousness. Covetousness is a greedy desire for more than what you are entitled to. It might be more money, it might be more possessions, it might be more power, more pleasure, more honor, more fame a greedy desire for more than what we are entitled to. That's covetousness. For example, Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden, they wanted more, didn't they? They knew what God said. You know, then Satan came in and and deceived them, and they wanted more. They wanted more than what God had given them there in the Garden. They fell victim to covetousness. We can't fall victim to covetousness. Colossians 3 and 5 says, "Mortify therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication. Uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, the Bible says, which is idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry. For which thing's sake the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience. We've got to beware of covetousness. You know, when the Bible, excuse me, when the God of the Bible is not enough for us, and when when people fail, to allow God to be sufficient for meeting all of their spiritual needs, greedy desire sets in for more. And people start to create their own gods in their own mind to satisfy their own greedy desires. That's how covetousness works at the the heart and the root of idolatry. These are the four main ingredients I I want you to consider and ponder tonight as ingredients of idolatry. And you know... We don't have time to do it tonight, but if we would take a little time to study Satan and who he is and how he works, what we would find is that Satan is well acquainted with these very four ingredients himself. Number one, Satan was a special angel created by God, an anointed cherub, but he wanted to be more than what God created him to be. He wanted a higher position in the heavenly realms. His problem was covetousness. The Bible teaches that also his heart was lifted up with pride. He had a pride problem. Satan rebelled against God. He rebelled against his Creator. He was banished from his heavenly post and heavenly position. Satan understood rebellion. And Satan surely understands deception because he's still seeking power and he is still seeking authority. He's creating his own kingdom here on earth. And he uses deception to blind the hearts and minds of millions and millions of people, all the while filling up the ranks of his own kingdom here on earth. Satan knows pride, rebellion, deception, and covetousness. Satan himself understands, maybe more than anybody, the danger of these ingredients of idolatry. I want to talk for just a few moments as I wrap it up about forms of modern day idolatry. I want to bring all this forward to today because like I said earlier in the lesson I believe idolatry is everywhere around us. Remember idolatry is a sin of the heart and a sin of the mind not so much a sin of the hands and a sin of the knees. The idols in our country today are tucked away out of sight hidden in the hearts of mankind and we need to be wise we need to see all this around us before it takes us by surprise. And listen, here is part of the deception of all this that I want you to clearly understand tonight. I'm afraid that even many, religi- re- any, even many relig- religious people around us today, even those who say they believe in Christ, even those who say they believe in the Bible, I'm afraid that maybe many of them are actually serving a version of God that they have imagined up in their own mind. We need to understand that that is a very real possibility. That many people today who say they're Christian, say they love God, say they're following the Bible, they have actually come under deception. And they're serving a God that they've invented in their own mind. We hear people say things today, things like this. I don't know if you've heard people say this. I've heard several people say this the last few years. In the context of some discussion about the Bible or God or religion, sometimes a person will say, well, you you know, but my God is big enough to do this. If you're trying to tell them or convince them that, you know, God doesn't work that way, He doesn't do that, well, they say, no, 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 my God is big enough to do that thing. Or... My God is big enough to accept, fill in the blank, accept the thing, you know, that the Bible says He will not accept. We hear this a lot today. You know, what we have to understand is the God of the Bible draws a very distinct line and places a clear boundary between good and evil, between acceptable and unacceptable, between right and wrong. Between true and false. The God of the Bible draws a very distinct line between all of those. And when a person no longer agrees with the line or the boundary that God has established in His Word, people dream up a different God. A God who draws the line maybe over here where they want it drawn. And then they say, this is my God over here. He, He draws the line here. This is the God I serve, and, and you know, my God is so much bigger than your little God over here who, who you say draws the line right here. People think this way. They reason this way. This is how they think about God, about the creator of the universe, the God that they serve. This, in, in essence, is idolatry. Inventing this own God in our mind who fits our own opinions and our own feelings and what we think is right, In essence, that is idolatry. We hear people today sometimes make a statement, I'm not a religious Christian, I'm a spiritual Christian. Now, don't get me wrong, I think we should all be spiritual Christians, okay? But many times this is said in a different context. Many times statements like these are made in the context of, well, you know, I see other people reading their Bible, and I see other people going to a church, and... You know, they're trying their very best to put their religion into practice, but people say, I found my own personal path to God, and many times it's a path to God that doesn't require the Bible, that doesn't require church or organized region, uh, religion of any kind. It's a personal path to God that's based on feelings, that's based on think-sos and opinions. And many times that type of thinking and mentality leads people to say statements like this. You know, I'm not a religious Christian. I'm a spiritual Christian. What is that? In and of itself, again, it's the very same thing. Different version of the very same thing. Creating our own God and finding our own personal path to Him. In essence, it's a soft form of idolatry. We hear people today sometimes make the statement, I believe in a higher power. Now, look, God is certainly the highest power in all the universe. Uh, But many times we hear people make statements like this to kind of refer to a God but not really call out the God that they're referring to, okay? Okay. The God of the Bible reveals himself in many different ways in Scripture. He reveals himself actually by many different names. He never reveals himself or refers to himself in the Bible as the higher power. Okay? God never reveals himself in that way or refers to himself that way, that that he's this mystical, nebulous, uh, undescribable, uncharacterizable higher power. God of the Bible has clearly defined who He is, what He will accept, and what He won't. We find that in the Bible. But we hear people today talk about that, that you know, they believe in their own higher power. If we will stop and listen to how people will go on to describe their higher power, it won't take you long to, to learn, if you listen carefully enough, that their higher power is not the God of the Bible. Okay, And if it's not the God of the Bible, what is it? It's a false god. In essence, it's an idol. See, don't be deceived by people who fall into this distorted way of thinking, this deceptive way of thinking about God and who he is and our relationship to him. There's only one true and living God. And when we start to dream up different gods and say, you know, my god's bigger than your god, when we start to dream up our own personal path to this spiritual God that you know we don't have to read the Bible, we don't have to be a part of uh, the, the church that Jesus built, when we start calling God this nebulous, uncharacterizable higher power, none of that brings honor and glory to the only true and living God. In fact, it encourages and helps man to go closer and closer and more and more into idolatry. My, first, my last scripture tonight is the very first one I talked about in this lesson from 1 John five twenty one. Little children. If you've read 1 John, you know that that's the way John addresses Christians. So when he says little children, he's talking to you and he's talking to me. Little children, Christians, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Let's beware of idolatry in all its forms, and all of its different fashions. Let's beware of it. Let's realize that it's not a problem for faraway places. It's a problem we have here, and it's a problem we can fall victim to if we don't carefully guard our heart and examine our mind and make sure that we're not putting anything higher than the God who made us, than the God who saves us, than the God who wants to have us someday spend eternity with Him in heaven. I close tonight by asking you, what idols have you set up in your heart tonight? Maybe you're here tonight and you've set up an idol in your heart. Now, I don't know what it is, but you might know and God would know. What idols have you set up in your heart and in your mind tonight? And would you not be willing to tear those idols down tonight so that we can go back and be like God told His people Israel to be, to worship Him in purity? and not pollute our lives, and not pollute the way that we worship Him. What idols have you set up in your heart tonight that might need to come down and be torn down so you can serve God faithfully? What version of God do you believe in and serve? Maybe you're here tonight and you realize that you've been trying to form God after your own image, after your own likeness, after what you want and what you like. What version of God do you truly serve? Here to tell you, friend, if it's not the only true and living God of the Bible, you need to beware because you're flirting with idolatry. If you're here tonight and you desire the prayers of this congregation or you desire to obey the gospel and baptism so that you can serve that only true and living God, again tonight we offer the invitation If you need the Lord in your life in any way, make that need known by coming forward, having a seat on the front while we stand and while we sing.